There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The heartbreaking tragedy in Turkey and Syria after the earthquake. We take a look at what happened in Syria. Our teams were traveling around doing what they could to support in those those early hours. Uh, and we recalled going past piles of rubble and, and people standing next to that rubble hearing their families struggling inside, but just being absolutely ill-equipped, not having the ability to do anything about it. Kieran Barnes, country director for Mercy Corps in Syria. He joins us along with others to tell this story that still needs to be told and kept up with. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. There have been more tremors and aftershocks in Turkey and Syria since we recorded these interviews. There have been more deaths, more building collapses. But what I wanted to do was to give us a sense of the uh, extent of the damage in both Turkey and Syria. So we've got two interviews to do that. Kieran Barnes, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. I know it's been a frantic week or so for you. Um, Before we jump into um, what it is that Mercy Corps is trying to do and trying to achieve, can you just set the scene for us there for those? We've heard about this since it happened. But just give us the sense from somebody who's on the ground in one of these countries, give us a sense of the situation. Yes, thank, yeah, thanks for the opportunity as well to share that. It, Syria's obviously been in 12 years of conflict, so it's already been a, a dire situation for the last decade prior to this um, recent event last, last Monday with the earthquake. In the northwest part of Syria, which is an isolated pocket um, controlled by different groups, uh, the population there is, has been under, has had desperate needs for the last few years, particularly with displacement. So people not having places to stay and they're permanently moving um, from one camp to another camp and they need those basic things such as water, uh, shelter, uh, somewhere to sleep at night, some, something to keep warm, food to eat, medicines, etc. Uh, there's about 2.8 million people living in those conditions already before the earthquake. Then of course, with what happened last Monday, um, was was catastrophic, again, in this region, which is extremely fragile, um, with very little infrastructure, very little investment over the last decade. 
So people are, are suffering again. This is a crisis on top of a crisis. Um, of course, we've seen images and, and, and it's clear that buildings have collapsed and unfortunately and many people have died. Our team that's on the ground, we have 45 Mercy Corps team members. On the first day when it happened, we had to check in with them. Were they safe? How were they affected? Thankfully, they were all safe. However, a few of them did lose their wives and children, um, which has been heartbreaking. Uh, and of course, we're doing our best to support them. But of course, it's not just our team, it's the wider communities that are also impacted. Um, our teams were traveling around doing what they could to support in those those early hours. Uh, and they recalled going past uh, piles of rubble and, and people standing next to that rubble, hearing their families struggling inside, but just being absolutely ill-equipped, not having the ability to do anything about it, uh, and just standing there in despair. Um, there's very little help that could come from the outside. Um, so it's been Syrians once again yeah. helping Syrians. So that is absolutely heartbreaking. But what it is that Mercy Corps does is you move beyond the heartbreak to actually doing something to help those people. So what is it that you're doing first off the bat for these folks? And maybe you can give us a few of the the elements that are a part of your your plan there. Yes, absolutely. And and in these kind of crises, the first thing is to, to take stock and find out what are those initial needs. So we're not just running in and handing things out. We're trying to identify what those problems are. That is step one. So very early on, we identified that water was going to be a critical issue. Uh, we provide water to camps where people are living in these kind of tented shelters. Um, but that, the water supply, the infrastructure around it was damaged because of the earthquakes. So soil mud were seeping in. Uh, that means we have to go find other sources to make sure that we can bring clean water for people to use on a daily basis. Obviously, people were displaced from their homes, their their houses had collapsed, or they were afraid, um, looking at the damage there um, and, and didn't want to sleep there. So we were fortunate to have pre-positioned kits already for displacement. So that includes things like mattresses, blankets, solar lamps. Uh, so very early on, we started distributing those to people in need. Uh, and then we managed to buy some hygiene kits, which are things like toilet roll and soap, sanitary pads, just the, the basics um, that people would need. So that's been the, the first thing that we've been focusing on. And then since then, we're building our plan for the coming weeks, because I do think this is going to continue to be a, a humanitarian disaster because of the, the nature of Syria and this isolated pocket. And it's very hard um, to get supplies in there. So we are concerned kind of for the next few weeks how we will be able to maintain support to those communities and we're building our plans around that. So that includes things like uh, how do we bring supplies in? How do we get cash to people so they can buy the things that they specifically need for that family? Um, also kind of shelter repair. So for those houses that are slightly damaged but will still work, can we seal them off against the elements? Because, of course, we're in the middle of winter uh, and that's been another um, disastrous kind of effect on, on this response. Yeah. So what are the key challenges that you're facing um, to, to, to doing what it is that you need to do? What are the main things that are problems for you? This is a, there's a few. And, and of course, Syria has been a, a kind of political hot potato for, for a long time. And, it's, it's, and the politics has been a challenge. Um, the access of supplies is key. And those border crossings in the first few days were partly damaged by the earthquake, but also the border officials themselves. They, they were personally affected. So just the ability for those to function and operate um, was hard 
uh, initially. However, they are open now and, and the UN is able to start bringing in some supplies. But we also need the commercial sector. We need to be able to buy things inside Syria because that's the fastest way to get things to people. So we need the commercial supply routes to be functioning as well. I think the other biggest challenge, to be honest, and, and this has probably been one of the most frustrating things, is the international community's response in terms of funding. We have not seen the level of funding that you would normally expect for such a disaster to reach organizations like ourselves and others who are on the ground already. Um, there's been a, a lot of hesitation, potentially because of the politics, but we need to see a step up on that and quite rapidly. Our teams need to be expanded. We need to hire more people. They're exhausted uh, and they're asking me, kind of, when are we hiring more people? And I'm saying, we're waiting, we're waiting. Um, so that is probably one of the biggest impediments at the moment. What about safety and security? One of the things that I heard fairly early on from uh, a friend or a colleague uh, who used to work at the UN um, on the counterterrorism front is that in the very early stages of this conflict, a prison where there were some, some insurgents um, imprisoned, they actually escaped and reminded me this person that this, you know, ISIS has played a huge role uh, in the everything there. So what about that? Is that an issue? Is that a concern? Uh, so that specific issue is not such a concern in the Northwest. I mean, Syria is broken up into these different parts with different groups and certainly in the Northeast, um, those kind of elements are are sometimes a challenge. Uh, and I know that the various governments around the world are watching that very closely. In the Northwest, there are different groups that are operating there. And uh, But as a humanitarian organization, what we're able to do is come in with very clear principles of how we operate and we negotiate our way in. Uh, and it's very clear that we don't distinguish between groups. We don't uh, we don't want to be uh, impacted by them, um, and that we're very we're there to support those communities on the ground, those who are vulnerable, those in need. Um, once that negotiation is done, and it's very clear, there's uh, we're able to to work with those communities. And I think when people are receiving help, um, they ought to make that that working. They protect you. They make sure that we we're not interfered with. So as humanitarians, it's it's keeping that interference at bay, keeping it uh, out of our way, so that we can do our job. Do you have any, um, one of the things that militaries have, and you're not a military, clearly you're in many ways the opposite, um, but oftentimes you have organizations who have what they call force protection, people that look out for them while they are in some kind of situation. Do you have that kind of, um, do you have that uh, access to that? Uh, actually, it's it's not something we need. Um because of the work we do and the nature of the work we do, uh, when we when we speak with communities, as I say, they they want the help, they appreciate the help. So we don't see those kind of threats to us. We don't need others watching our back. Um, it's all about ensuring that that discussion with the community, explaining what the projects are, demonstrating that we are credible, that we're bringing quality projects uh, there to support them, then we're often welcomed in. And it's not something we have to be concerned about. Um, so we're able to do our business. Right. So um, what assistance have you been able to deliver so far? You've told me what you needed to do, what the what's necessary there, but what have you been able to accomplish? Yeah, so far, so as I said, we had those uh, pre-position kits and we're, we've been able to distribute them. So that was something we could do very quickly. Um, and we're working on procuring more of those kits at the moment. We do need to kind of work with suppliers 
and make sure that that there are there are there are enough in the supply chain to deal with that. So there's the hygiene kits, those shelter kits. Um, we're evaluating at the moment what the possibilities are for food. So that's kind of the next thing. A lot of people are saying they can't access food or the prices are extremely high. So we're looking at working with bakeries to build their capacity. Maybe they need some uh, refurbishment because of the earthquake to get functioning again. Um, so some of those very basic things. So food is another element. Uh, and as I mentioned before, water is probably uh, one of the most critical things as well. So making sure those boreholes where we access the water are fixed quickly um, so that we can maintain that water supply. Those are currently what we're working on. And then further down the line, um, we'll be looking at things such as um, rubble removal. And that's kind of a cash for work program where uh, clearly there's got there's got to be a huge clear up um, from, from this disaster. Uh, so we'll have community members coming in, helping to remove that rubble, but we do a cash for work program, which enables them to have a bit of employment. It puts money in their pocket. They can provide for their families. And at the same time, we're clearing up from this disaster. So it has a dual kind of benefit that comes out of that. And then particularly cash is a, a very dignified way for people to respond because each family is going to have its own needs. It could be the family needs to buy medicines because people are sick or they don't have enough food or they need to pay rent uh, for somewhere else to stay because they've lost their home. But it gives them the choice uh, and it means it's more targeted rather than just always doing kind of a blanket uh, response. Kieran, you guys have been there since pretty early on in, in this in this and and um i wonder if you could just share with the audience you know what kind of days you have give us a sense of a day i know they have to be really long days and nights um just give us a sense of um what you're up against you know each day yes absolutely and and i think um we have we have a few teams involved um we have a team on the ground inside syria and then we have a team based here in jordan that manages that remotely because because of the access issues um, the first thing in the morning, to be honest, is we have a, an incident management team that was formed right at the beginning on day one, a couple of hours after the earthquake, where we pulled key personnel together and they are 100% dedicated to managing um, this response. We then obviously once connected with the team on the ground. So my day at the moment starts with that management meeting, first of all, where we set what's the plans ahead, what are the issues, what are we tackling, how do we overcome problems, uh, and sending that course and then to be honest, from that point on, everybody goes to their teams and they're just implementing, they're communicating as an organization. We have to obviously talk internally, um, but the day is, it, it's a kind of a hectic day of communication. It's emails, it's messages, um, it's phone calls, and just trying to network and coordinate together so that our response is, is rapid, it's relevant, uh, and, and it's having an impact. And it's, uh, it's yeah, it's kind of 7 in the morning to 11 p.m. at night barely chance to stop and uh but we'll, but we'll keep going and um hopefully yeah. we'll bring in extra support to kind of relieve people because we want to make sure that we look after our teams particularly those in northwest syria yeah one more thing um do you have any issues at all with connectivity considering trying to reach others in in, in another country and certainly we know that the infrastructure in syria is not that good and explain uh, how that works do you have those issues to deal with as well Yes, uh, particularly since the earthquake. I mean, you know, the, these things kind of happen all the time wherever we are in the world. But, but because of the earthquake, there was uh, some of the infrastructure was damaged. Electricity has been a problem. Um, and we are also concerned about fuel shortages, which impact on these things because a lot of things are run on generators and such. Um, the Internet was down because some of the Internet is also coming from Turkey. And, of course, Turkey 
who was affected as well. So we mostly use the internet to reach with our teams. It's been intermittent. Our office, thankfully, was not um, affected by the earthquake. It, we had it checked by an engineer. It is We can use it. Um, and at the office, we have a generator so that we can create our own power. And as soon as that was, a, we were basically approved to use the building, the team has been using that as a base. And it has improved, but it's still intermittent. And then, of course, the weather also has an impact on this because a lot of it is wireless. So um, when it's been snowing, that's when it becomes more of a challenge. Um, but it, we... We are heavily reliant on good communications, but but uh, thankfully we've kind of managed to keep it going. Okay. Kieran, um, thank you. Uh, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think is important to talk about before we go? <clears throat> I think that's the, yeah, no, I think that's that's the main thing. Those are the main things. That's That's been great. Yeah, just to set the scene has, has been really good, and hopefully that helps. Well, I'm sure it will. Thank you, Kieran Barnes, Country Director for Mercy Corps. And you're the Syria country director, correct? Yeah, Syria country okay. director. All right. Kieran, thank you. I know it's later in your day, and you probably have been up since three days ago. So I'll give you a chance to move on to the next part of your life. And thank you again profusely for taking time to talk with us and share the story. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, for the picture in Turkey, we turn to Didem Demirjan, who's the deputy executive director of Oxfam affiliate KEDV. Didem, thank you so much for your patience. Um, I know it's late there and I know you've been very busy and um, things are very difficult there. Um, can I ask you first to just give me, give us a sense of what the situation in Turkey is right now uh, in terms of what you're trying to achieve with this, this earthquake? Uh, so first, let me maybe try to give you a sense of the disaster itself because this is this is of massive scale um, covering 10 provinces so it is like three times the size of Belgium two and a half uh, of the uh, times uh, bigger than Netherlands so the size is massive and it is 13 million people that are affected from, from this disaster. So we are talking about a big geography and many people. And, you know, we can say that everyone in this country has someone that has been affected from this disaster, died or injured or has to move out or is still staying outside, you know, without a shelter. So, so the scale of the disaster is big. And from the first moments of this disaster, we first tried to make sure that our staff in the area is safe because we as Oksan Kedev already had, you know, operations and programs there to try to, you know, empower low-income women economically and socially. And we were working with grassroots women in the communities so we already had our staff and our programs in the area. And so for the, from the first minutes of the disaster, we first tried to contact our staff and then their families and then the women that we work with in the neighborhoods and in the villages and in the women cooperatives and grassroots organizations. So uh, we immediately started working on that. And then we started you know, determining first the need for rescue. 
So we had a team who were collecting the information about the you know people waiting to be rescued and delivering that information to the rescue teams on the ground. And in the meantime, we were also uh, trying to support the surviving communities so that they get the immediate needs that they had on the ground because it was cold. They were having aftershocks and, you know, repeated, repeating earthquakes. So, you know, we were trying to support them so that they could stay outside of their buildings. They didn't want to get into their buildings because they were afraid. So we were trying to support them in getting the necessary shelter, the food, the water, you know, the very basic needs that they had at that moment. So tell me right now, um, it's the the 15th or the 15th of February. This is nine days after the um, earthquakes there. So what are the biggest challenges for, for you now? So, you know, as I said, it's a big geographical area and many people. So the biggest challenge, I think, is to making sure that everyone in the area is reached, you know. So that's what we are trying to do. We have been working with the grassroots communities, as I said. So we are contacting them and with we are a member of a national disaster response platform, we are making sure that we assess the needs and immediately make sure that these communities get those needs. So we are working on that. Another challenge is the destroyed infrastructure. So people still have difficulty in getting clean water 24 hours a day. They cannot still get that to clean themselves, you know. And they still don't have access to toilets or to showers or, you know, like the appropriate shelter for winter conditions because it is cold. And as I said, people don't want to get into their houses. So we are at the moment uh, working with our teams and with our partners to make sure that these people have uh, at least a tent that is appropriate for the winter conditions. They receive the food and the water that they need. And in addition, of course, women need hygiene products. Uh, Babies and children, they need like uh, baby food and uh, and diapers, etc. So we are working in coordination uh, to deliver all these needs to the the people. So um, how how would you assess the, the safety? Uh, and security situation in the region right now? Mm -hmm. Uh, So people, as I said, because of the aftershock and because their buildings are not assessed yet in terms of safety, they prefer not to get into their buildings. So uh, physically, um, you know, they, they, they are not, they don't, they do not feel safe to get into their buildings. So they still stay outside. And they, uh, as I said, the hygiene um, facilities are not enough. So there is a risk of the spread of disease, of illnesses, because children have been outside for days in the cold. So there are still those risks. Um, you know, the, the, the state has been uh, providing the 
police force, etc., to make sure that people feel secure in the area. Uh, but still, in terms of like uh, physical health and psychological health, there is still a lot that needs to be done, and people are still in trauma. So we need to support them in in you know uh, we need to provide them psychological support because everyone there in the area uh, have lost a family member or a friend. Okay, so how can ordinary people in other places help in this situation? What's the best way to help? Well, the best way, I think, is to donate to a local NGO, national NGO, or an international NGO that you know, um, because the needs uh, are changing. Uh, today we know that there is a need for diapers, but tomorrow there is a big transportation of diapers to the area, so tomorrow the need may change. That's why it's important that we have the flexibility to be able to procure or to purchase whatever need is immediately on the ground, on the, on the affected area. So it is really important that we have that flexibility. And second, it is going to be a long-term for the people to rebuild their lives. Um, as I said, we are talking about millions of people, many families, thousands of children uh, that will need to maybe go to new schools, adapt to new lives. Women will need to start maybe, you know, the, their economic initiatives to start earning an income. So it will take a long time to rebuild those lives. And it's important that we have the financial resources to support these communities for, for at least like six months or a year so that they rebuild their lives in that time. I hear as well, Didem, that they're still recovering or still rescuing people. Some people after so long are still alive in some of this, in some of this rubble. This is absolutely remarkable and incredible. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, it has been, as you said, days. And the search and rescue team have been working for hours without sleep. And I mean, I cannot tell you about the solidarity that's going on on the ground. I mean, before the rescue team came, it was it, it was the communities themselves, the neighbors trying to you know rescue people from the rebels, and then came in the rescue and a search and rescue team, and they have been working for days now. Unfortunately, the hope is fading because, as you said, it has been, you know, uh, nine days. But uh, still, people are alert, you know, if there's a sound or anything like that, they immediately direct rescue teams so that, you know, we can, uh, we can help if there are still people under the rebels that are waiting to be rescued. Is there anything that's important about this situation that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Well, I mean, the the international solidarity is really, really um, something that we, we want to thank for because we've received, you know, emails and calls from our, you know, uh, supporters all around the world, people, private sector companies and NGOs, international NGOs from all around the world, they want to support, they want to uh, support the people uh, of, of 
Turkey. And we really, really want to thank for that. Um, and we really hope to see a continuation of this support because, as I said, you know, this is unfortunately a very big uh, devastation for many people. And we hope we can support all these people to rebuild their lives. Yudem, thank you so much for taking time to do this. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, please let us know if uh, there are changes. Uh, we want to continue to cover the story. Unfortunately, we in the media often cover stories for a day or two and then we leave. But this is a long-term story. We need to stay on this. So please uh, let us know how things are going. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, President Biden's visit to Ukraine. Even though they're at war with Russia, Ukrainians are on top of the world today. This surprise visit, it means uh, really a lot because it's not just a visit. It's the first visit of the president of the United States of America to Ukraine in the last 15 years. And it couldn't have come at a more appropriate time. Yuri Sack, an advisor to Ukraine's minister of defense, said this was about more than symbolism. And it was very important to demonstrate, you know, first of all, to our enemy that the plan, the hope of the Russians that Ukraine will be left alone in this war, uh, the hope of the Russians that the West will not be committed uh, did not come through. A look at the war in Ukraine one year later. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast.